Alright, hey friends, it's Mick. I just wanted to give everyone a quick heads up before we start this episode. The case that we're covering today is going to involve a bit of a discussion about some serious mental health issues, and that's going to include um, a conversation about suicidal ideation and self-injury. We just wanted to give everyone a chance to know that before we dive in. Um, and since the title gives us a way for this episode, we are going to be talking about the Prozac defense. Um, so that is going to include a discussion of some extremely rare side effects, potentially, of Prozac and antidepressants. I think I say this in a million times in the episode, but the side effects that we're going to be exploring are extremely rare. Um, we love psychiatric meds here at MidWretched and All Medicine. Um, we will never try to give you medical advice that's between you and your awesome doctors. We're just here to talk about crime. Anyway, let's get into it. We love you. Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Hope everyone is doing well out there. Man, I am like in, even more than usual, I am in like crime mode this week. Oh my God. Like every documentary, yes. every podcast, just everywhere. It's been like true crime reality. Yeah. So I didn't know if you wanted to touch on any of that. Well, I... I kind of do, but at the same time, I'm like, not sure how much yet because nothing has really happened. But, um, yeah, so we'll say this, um, true crime. We talked about like the cases that made true crime hit close to home. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for you, it was Erica Baker. For me, it was Ypsilanti Ripper. And now I, uh, know somebody who has been charged with first degree murder and um, this person and I had a contentious relationship, but one that required closeness. Mm -hmm. And um, so then I like was scrolling a news feed one day a couple weeks ago, and she's all over the news. And were you just randomly scrolling, or did you look around? No, I was just scrolling Facebook, and it was wow. like the local news bulletin. Uh -huh. So was her arrest and everything. So um, true crime is now hitting very, very, very close to home. Uh -huh. And uh, so just like working through that has given me this. And like, you know, it's not it feels like it's not mine to work through. Right. Like I'm not mm -hmm. I'm not the victim. I'm not that person's family. I didn't know the victim. I know the perpetrator. But even though we didn't have a good relationship, it was still somebody that I thought that I knew, right? And I thought that I knew that person's yeah. crazy and knew that. Per and of course, you know, <laughs> uh, innocent until proven guilty. But you never really know. You never really know. And it just kind of hammered home how much like we talked about it with like weepy and stuff like, you know, we want to think that it's always going to be these like outliers, these loners, these like people that, um, you know, swim against the current of society. And that's comforting to us. And this person that I know is successful, um, mm -hmm. has a nice home, has friends, has family, is normal in, you know, yeah, every sense of the word, like nothing particularly unconventional. And 
now we're kind of going through this thing where, you know, uh, they're about to be prosecuted. So it may be something that we can like detail out down the road, but it's, I hesitate to do like names and stuff like that just because it's not even in court yet. Like until things are official, I don't think that we should really start hitting home on it. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a charge. Uh, this person is behind bars awaiting trial. The judge would not grant bond because of the severity of the crime. So now we're just kind of waiting to, you know, kind of see what happens next. But it's definitely feeling very um, wretched. Yeah. 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 So stand <sighs> by, dear listeners, for for that one. I do kind of think we we ought to cover it someday, but um, we'll give it some time. We need to give it some process time. and fulminate. And- yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had I was struck by like how affected I was emotionally by it. Like. Yeah. Um, I really needed to very much process that information and that situation. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I guess it just made me kind of feel like I really feel for people that are like related to these perps or that know these perps in some way or another, especially if it comes a surprise like this one does. Like, yeah. You know, like um, we talked about with uh, Pretty Bird Woman, like Gary Lee Long Jr. did not surprise anybody with mm-hmm. his crime. But so many of our other perps, we've heard like, oh, they seemed so normal or nothing about them stood out or whatever. And like the person that like worked with them or was in school with them or whatever, or, you know, friend of a friend, like maybe you were at a dinner party together or something like that. Like, it's a really weird to be that person when something like this goes down. That's actually really interesting because we're going to touch on a couple of those moments in this case. Really? Yeah. Wow. Did I just tee you up like completely accidentally? You totally just like teed it up like I don't know a good sports metaphor right now. (laughs) Like a tee ball for a six-year-old to hit. I know. No, I've been watching football all day and I came up short on sports metaphors. I'm ashamed of myself. You're the Scottie Pippen to my Michael Jordan. Aw, wait a minute. I guess I I'll, I can be Scotty. That's fine. For thi- for this instance. Yeah, no, it's fine. You can be Michael Jordan. He's problematic. No. I was going to say most of the time I'm Dennis Rodman, but that's more <laughs> That's <laughs> I mean, my fierce crush on Michael Jordan, I think single-handedly brought me through the 90s. I didn't have a crush on him. It's more like an idolization thing because mm. I played so much basketball when I was little and we have the same birthday. Oh, do you really? I didn't know that. I wrote him a letter when I was like 7. Aw. That's so cute. No, I had, like, the biggest childhood crush on him. And, like, I was, like, little, little, you know, like, yeah. seven or eight or nine. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, now that I've teed you up, uh, I really, like, don't know anything about your case. The only thing I know is that um, it's a crime against a child, right? So, yeah. that's kind of an extra layer of... I think just heads up to people since that can be harder for some people to hear than crimes against adults. So, yeah, yeah, that's all I know. So, you're gonna take me on an odyssey of unknown. The other warning I guess I'm gonna give is I am going to get really nerdy at a certain point. Oh, because um, we're doing the Prozac defense. Yeah, we're gonna talk about brains and neurotransmitters. Oh, this is so great. I'm so here for this. Side note, in case any of our listeners are curious, when you hear big jingles (laughs) in the audio, that is Murder Beagles. 
And if you hear like doors slamming in my space, um, we'll try to edit them out. But I know that my uh, delightful partner is out buying ice cream because he saw me eating ice cream and he got jealous. <laughs> so I know he was going out <laughs> to go get ice cream. <laughs> So now that we're like 42 minutes into this Zoom. Uh, Today we're going to talk about the murder of Elizabeth Olton. We are going to start our story on the night of October 21st, 2009. And our story starts with actually the six-year-old Emma Bustamante walked over to her neighbor's home, the home of Elizabeth Olton, who is nine years old, and asked her to play. It was in the evening, so her mom was a little hesitant. The kids had school the next day, but she agreed to let Elizabeth go over and said, just be home by 6 o'clock. Okay. Now, Elizabeth Olton was a pretty girly girl. She loved dolls, pretend the color pink. She was afraid of the dark. She was afraid of the woods by their house. Um, And they lived out in St. Martin's, Missouri, which is a super small town of 1,100 people. Oh, wow. And there was kind of a wooded area between the two girls' homes. But they did kind of run back and forth and kind of around the neighborhood quite a bit. It was an area where a lot of families lived and a lot of the kids knew each other. So typically, Elizabeth would kind of walk around the streets to avoid going into the woods because she was a little scared of them. So the two girls walk around, they go to Emma Bustamante's house where they play for a little while. Her mom kind of finishes up their regular evening routine. And when it gets to be about 6.15, Elizabeth hadn't returned home yet. It was only about a five minute walk to Emma's house. Elizabeth would typically a pretty responsible girl and like I said she was afraid of the dark so it wasn't gonna be like her to stay out late or to not listen to her mom so Elizabeth's mom and her brothers just kind of went around the area to search for her she hadn't been missing that long but again it was kind of an oddity that she didn't come home on time by 6 45 she had called the police wow fast And this is kind of a lot like the Erica Baker case, where almost immediately there's a massive search underway. Now, like I said, St. Martin's only has a population of 1,100 people. And apparently almost immediately, like by dark that night, there were 100 people out looking for Elizabeth. Wow, 10% of their population, basically. That's pretty amazing. I know. Police headed to the home of Emma Bustamante pretty quickly because obviously, Mm -hmm. hey, she was over here. Where'd you see her? Emma Bustamante lived with her grandmother, her two older half-brothers, and her older half-sister, Alyssa. Okay. Police interviewed the family. They all kind of denied that they knew what happened to her. Emma said that Elizabeth left around 6 o'clock and that she walked through the woods between the two homes. Mm. So it shouldn't have been more than, like I said, a five or ten minute walk. But police thought that that was odd because Elizabeth's mom, Patricia, said, no, she gets scared real easy. She's not going to walk through the woods by herself. The police also noticed that the 15-year-old Alyssa, the older sister, was acting kind of strangely. She was very unemotional, very distant, Mm. didn't seem concerned at all. Okay. 
but didn't really have anything to kind of go on. And I think she's a 15-year-old girl and this is a nine-year-old kid that's been missing for maybe a couple hours. Yeah, and it's also like you could see it being kind of the quote-unquote cool thing for a 15-year-old to kind of act like so unaffected and like, you know, I could see that. Whatever, it's fine. So police began to search the woods around the home they found one recently dug hole in the ground. God. They searched it. There was nothing there. Mm. The night went on. It got a little colder and people start to go home planning to start up the search the next day. So the search was called off for the night. Was that mm. just the civilian search or the police search too? The civilian search with everything getting so dark, I, d- I don't think that the police found anything that night. Yeah, it just seems unusual that the police would stop searching overnight as well. I mean, you see that sometimes, but Mm -hmm. the younger the kid, the less likely that seems. You're right. It was probably a couple police stayed, continued the search, but definitely the civilian search party went on it. Okay. So the next morning, they start to search the woods again. (laughs) Meanwhile, the Bustamante home is having its own little crisis. Oh boy, really? Alyssa has a known history of mental health struggles, including two past suicide attempts, Mm. significant and very severe self-injury. And that morning, she's driven to a psychiatric hospital in St. Louis for an assessment. Oh, wow. And this is something that her grandmother, who she lived with, they had done before. Alyssa was in ongoing therapy. Like I said, she had two past suicide attempts. This morning... Alyssa was not admitted to the hospital, but she was released into the care of her current outpatient mental health team. Okay. She was called in sick to school that day, and they went home. Shortly after the family returns home from the assessment, they are confronted by the police again. This time with a search warrant to search the home. Oh, boy. Obtained, obviously, because it was the last location that Elizabeth was known to be. They search all of the public spaces. They search Emma's room. Everything seems pretty normal until they enter Alyssa's room. Oh, no. As they open the door to her bedroom, they are met with walls that are scrawled with quotes and poems, some of them written in blood. Oh, my God. Including the phrase, I cut to see blood because I like it. There's also the crude outline of a person with the name of her little sister scribbled next to it. Oh my goodness. And what looks like slashes cut into the outline of this body. Wow. Police immediately take photos of everything that they see along with anything that could be considered evidence, including Alyssa's diary. Interesting. Police further question Alyssa along with her grandmother who acts as her guardian, like I said. Initially, Alyssa was very evasive, but after further questioning, she starts to admit to little things. Mm. She first admits to digging the hole that they found in the woods. Oh, wow. When asked why, she said, I just like to dig holes. Hmm. She is eventually taken into police custody to continue formal questioning. She's 15, right? She's 15, yes. Where's mom and dad? We're going to get to it. That's an important part of her story. So she's taken into police custody to continue formal questioning, where in the background, police have been reading through her diaries. Oh, boy. Okay, tell me about the diaries. (laughs) 
And they confront her with a very jarring quote from her most recent journal entry. Okay. That said, I just fucking killed someone. I strangled them and slit their throat and stabbed them and now they're dead. I don't know how to feel at the moment. It was amazing. As soon as you get over the, oh my God, I can't do this feeling, it's pretty enjoyable. I'm kind of nervous and shaky though right now. Okay, I got to go to church now. LOL. Oh my gosh. I am trying to think how I'm even reacting to that. It's, I, wow. It sounds so 15. Yeah. And it's like one of those things where if it's true you'd look at it one way and if it's not true you'd look at it another way you know what I mean mm-hmm. but I'm guessing that it's true yeah it was true wow. Alyssa tried to like scratch and scribble it out oh really like after she'd written it we don't know if it was immediately afterward or whenever but kind of took a black pen and tried to scribble out everything so if you try to like search a picture of it it's just a big black scribble oh, wow. but they were able to get through it they used you whatever can, that technique yeah, is you can trace it yeah out. yeah so upon being confronted with this Alyssa eventually confessed and agreed to lead police to the body oh my god and this is the next day or two days later the next day yeah very quick yeah. She led the police back to the woods in a grave that she had dug five days prior, not too far from the one that they had found. Oh, interesting. The police had actually walked past it three times in their search. Wow, and they just didn't notice the disturbed earth? Yep. They found the first Mm -hmm. hole, but they never found this one. Jeez. Alyssa confessed to strangling, stabbing, and slitting the throat of Elizabeth Olden. Good gracious. Yeah. That poor beautiful child. Oh my god, she she was. She was she looked like a complete sweetheart too. And needless to say, her mom and her brothers were absolutely Definitely. hysterical. Yeah. But this is where I want to pull back and take a look at Alyssa's life. To try to figure out what causes a 15-year-old girl who is otherwise incredibly smart incredibly popular really super active in her church wow so how the heck do we get to this moment (laughs) exactly you asked about Alyssa's parents Alyssa's parents are Michelle and Cesar Bustamante they actually met because they were cousins by marriage oh Michelle was 15 and living in California with Cesar when she became pregnant Both, even at that time, had a history of chronic alcohol and methamphetamine use. Alyssa, from a very, very young age, was witness to pretty severe domestic violence. Mm. Both of her parents were in and out of jail for various offenses, from assault and battery to drug possession. At Alyssa's trial, Caesar testified that there was a pretty significant family history of mental illness on his side of the family. That's interesting. 
As I mentioned, Alyssa had a pretty severe history of self-injury, which I'll go into a little bit more. He said that he engaged in self-injury just as much as a child. As young as age seven, Alyssa would regularly find her mother passed out or overdosing and be left to care for both her mother and her twin brother. Oh my goodness. The family moved around a lot, mostly between California and Missouri. So were they from Missouri and then like had moved out to California kind of thing? When Alyssa was born, she lived in California, but her parents were, I believe, originally from Missouri. When she was seven, her father was finally arrested for felony assault and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Wow. So he was in prison at the time of this murder. Jeez, what a horrible, horrible way to grow up. Yeah. Her mother continued to struggle with addiction. And when she was seven or eight, I believe, her grandmother, Karen Brooke, took custody of Alyssa and her twin brothers. Eventually also took custody of her younger half-sister, Emma. Oh, I have a question about that, too. Yeah. Um, And maybe you'll get to it later. Did Emma, like, knowingly go pick up Elizabeth for this crime, like, in cahoots with Alyssa, or? We'll get to it, but a short answer is yes, picked her up for Alyssa, but I don't think it was in cahoots. Like, didn't know what the end. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't think that... At six year old, six years old. Oh Emma right, she was only was six. about to happen. I brain farted and thought they were both nine for a minute. Yeah. Oh. oh yeah. Yeah, she was a little bit younger, which is also kind of why Elizabeth's mom was like, eh. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So grandma takes custody of. So grandma takes custody and moves into Missouri. Yeah. Yes. So at the time they were living in Jefferson City, Missouri, which was, it's a little bit bigger of a town, about 45,000 people, but opted to move them to a much smaller, more close-knit town, St. Martin's. Oh, oh, yeah, I know Um, where that is. Okay. Karen moved them to St. Martin's, hoping that it would be kind of a fresh start for them. Like that they would be able to make friends and start a new life in this more kind of close-knit community. Yeah. Something that the kids had never had before. Right, yeah, stable neighborhoods. And, you know, we talk about this a lot when um, we talk about, like, why I have an aversion to neighbors. (laughs) And, like, you know, I've been trying, you know, I had been kind of really trying to, like, dig into that. Like, why does it bother me when my neighbors are chatty? And and moving into, like, a very, like, neighborhoody neighborhood, it just made me realize, like, where I grew up, People moved around a lot, so you never. It, all, neighborhoods always had this like transient quality to them. So it's oh yeah, I can kind, see that. Yeah, it's just a different kind of stability to be somewhere where people actually stay. And I'd imagine yeah. for those kids, it might have been kind of a similar experience where it was like now you might have neighborhood friends that stick around and don't like you know your school friends aren't going to be there for a month and then be gone because they you know. Moved or you're not going to be exactly. gone after a yeah. month. Yeah, you know? so I'd imagine that would be, that's a big transition for those kids, for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Karen said that the boys adjusted pretty well, and they really welcomed the new space and the comfort and the structure. Mm-hmm. 
But Alyssa obviously was a little older and she had a really hard time coping with really what boils down to a drastic role transition. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about it, she was used to taking care of her siblings and being in charge. She was used to chaos and stress and independence even at the age of seven. God, does that resonate? (laughs) How old was she when they moved her to Missouri when grandma took the custody? Uh, Between seven and nine. Yeah, I think that there was a little bit of kind of back and forth between her mom and her grandma for a little while um, before Karen, the grandmother, took full custody of them. Gotcha. And Karen is mom's mom. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So suddenly Alyssa has this structure and this accountability. And as much as we know, like, that's way healthier for a kid... It's also really hard, especially as a kid at nine, you're just starting to go through, starting to hit like early adolescence. Mm. You're hitting that rebellious stage anyway. And also just like the, you know, there's a loss of freedom in a way because she was so used to being independent. But then I'd imagine also like the gaining of the freedom that is childhood, right? Like now you have, you're going to play, you are going to go to Uh school and focus on school, you know, where in her Mm -hmm. previous life, that probably was not reality. Yeah. Yeah, no. And even from like a trauma perspective, she is so used to always being on edge, always expecting the next terrible thing, her mom to be overdosing or someone to be arrested or evicted maybe. You know, she's always in this like heightened state of alert and hypervigilance. On the bright side though, Alyssa really excelled in school. She was earning A and B grades. She made friends really easily. She was super outgoing and really active in her local LDS church and youth groups. Okay. Her friends described her as funny, caring, outgoing, and always nice to new people. Her grandmother described her as very protective of her younger siblings, which completely makes sense. So they kind of have this little adjustment period. But after a few years, Alyssa began to exhibit some pretty severe symptoms of depression. She had her first suicide attempt in 2007. So it would have been at age 13. Where she took a bottle of over-the-counter sleeping medication. Oh, goodness gracious. She was rushed to the hospital where she was admitted to inpatient psychiatric care for 10 days. Wow. Which is a pretty significant, like, inpatient hospitalization. Yeah, they held on to her for a while. Yeah. At that time, she was placed on Prozac and referred for ongoing outpatient therapy. So good, like, continuity of care. Um, which she actually continued for the next few years. However, she did have several changes in therapists and treatment teams. I was trying to look up the the place where she went to therapy just to get an idea of like the systems. Yeah. And I believe it was a community mental health or um, a public health care yeah. facility, which I only mentioned because that's really common mm-hmm. is to have a lot of changes in therapists and to have, you know, therapists turnover really high which isn't always great for progress. Right. Yeah, for sure. But it, it makes sense because it's harder hours it's not the pay is not going to be as strong as private practice yeah 
Yeah. And I say that because I have worked in multiple community mental health facilities and it's rough. Yeah. Yeah. So she had at least three therapists in the two years that she was there. Um, She also began engaging in self-injury behavior. The nurse who examined her when she was hospitalized again after her. So she was arrested. And then shortly after her arrest, she was hospitalized for a suicide attempt. Oh, wow. Okay. The nurse that examined her counted 25 cutting scars on one arm and 125 on the other. Oh, my gosh. That is additionally, yeah. Additionally, Alyssa would carve into her arm. Oh. Um, at various times, things including both "kill me" at one point and a peace sign at a different point. Uh, along with these, she had burn marks and other scars to total three hundred self-injury scars. A medical examiner who works in mental health said that it was one of the most severe cases of self-injury they had ever seen. That's so horrible. Yeah. Did they have any, this is kind of a really nitty gritty question, but did they have any sense Mm -hmm. looking at those scars and those wounds, like of the duration of the history of them or like how much of that was one, like one go, how much of it was kind of over time? We know that she had been doing it for about two years. Okay. And kind of just like at various different points and all of that. So it's not like it was all in one episode or anything like that. And grandma was aware that it was going on, keeping her in therapy and trying to keep that continuity of care. Yeah. 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 That is one thing I would say that like her grandma and the care that she was getting, like they were not neglectful. Of any of this. Like, Grandma kept her in therapy. They tried to do everything that they could do. And the medication, then, I'm sure, yeah. Yep, exactly. And the thing was, like, she... The scars were pretty visible, like, on her arms and whatnot. And she didn't necessarily try to hide them from people. Friends said that they might, like, for example, they might be doing something, like, hanging out at her house and her sleeve might fall down. And they would ask her about it and she'd just kind of play it off like, oh, well, whatever. Mm-hmm. One of her friends was quoted as saying that Alyssa didn't really seem to care much about herself. Aww. So that she was really caring and attentive to other people, but didn't do so much for herself. Wow. Which, ugh, let's talk about a trauma profile. Yeah, I was also going to say, like, does that also kind of harken us back to borderline a little bit? She would have been too young mm-hmm. that I think most people would not have, most responsible clinicians would not have diagnosed her with that. But it does have a pretty strong developmental pattern of we're leading down that It road. feels like the seeds, I guess, for that is what I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the way that I explain it, because I, I have seen kids like yeah. this. Me too. Um, often, like capacity, which is just <laughs> man, yeah. This is when I did a lot more therapy. These were a big chunk of the referrals that I got and the kids that I saw. Yeah. And when parents would ask, because borderline has become kind of this big scary monster, I think, to a lot of parents. Of is my kid borderline? And in a situation like this, a lot of times I would talk to parents about, you know. 
personality disorders and character development happens over time. And at this stage, when they're an adolescent, when they're a teenager, that personality hasn't necessarily gelled. It's still jiggly. It's still malleable. We can still do some work to build good coping skills, build healthier defense mechanisms and healthier relationships. And hopefully kind of move away from that route. Yeah. So that makes sense. That's interesting. I think on the, like on the education side, you often, you get the, you know, you see kids at the end of a, you know, they come back from an inpatient stay or they, you know, you know, things are going on. And I've had teenagers talk about having a diagnosis of borderline, which Mm -hmm. um, makes me wonder kind of where that does get done. Yeah. It does. It, it does get done. I could stop. Whether or not it should get done at the frequency at which it seems to be getting done is maybe another question. You're going to get all my psychologist groups adding. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can just move on into your case. Girl, you have no idea. Go to a psychology conference and bring up this topic and you are going to start a fight. Okay, I look forward to it. You pay for my registration, I'll be there. So, like I said, although she was noted to be kind of really kind and outgoing in public, in school, and things like that, she also developed kind of a darker persona online. Mm. So, we are in 2009. We are in the early days of YouTube. We're in the transition between MySpace and Facebook. we're We're in the later parts of the MySpace years. Her YouTube profile listed her interests as cutting and killing people. Oh my gosh. One of her profiles listed or had the quote, bad decisions make great stories, mm-hmm. which is also a very 15-year-old yes. quote. She made one social media post that said, quote, all I want in the world is a reason for all this pain. Ah, uh, wow. Just a lot of darkness there. A lot of darkness. Um... And that kind of came out in this very kind of emo aesthetic. Yeah. A lot of dark makeup, Mm -hmm. a lot of either real or fake blood. And all of this came back at her trial. Ah, that's interesting. Every single post, every single picture was thrown by the prosecution in her face. Ooh, feelings. Okay feelings right very many feelings okay so many feelings if you used any social media posts i put up i don't think i had social media no i had an aim yeah because i had to make your facebook when we were in college (laughs) (laughs) but you would do it i know and i had i only have an instagram because mindy threatened to make one for me i'm glad that we're the same person basically you are but like to your point I was actually like in an internet wormhole a couple weeks ago reading my old dead journal because I was I was too emo for a live journal so I had a dead journal and I mean to be totally honest with you like the stuff that I posted in there I didn't talk about like cutting or, or killing people but I certainly had posts or phrases that I used or song lyrics that I posted that I'm sure we're, like, kind of in line with what she was posting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. 
that I didn't have any of the social media stuff, just I wasn't cool enough. Mm. But I was that kid that rode all over their shoes and rode all over their jacket. And it was all like super dark, self-loathing, very depressive stuff. Yeah. And it's so hard to see the line, especially like I think when you end up being in a a caring profession, like either yours or mine, Mm -hmm. and you work with kids so much, you then have to like take a step back and look at like, okay, what, you know, what part of this is really problematic and what part of this is I'm 15 right yeah yeah because part of it is just so ingrained in being 15 and struggling with mental health stuff and and struggling with um extremity right like you don't necessarily always have the language or the like emotional intelligence to be able to kind of grapple with the shades of gray in your emotional life. Right. So it's either like, Uh, yeah, but all that to say like that type of defense in court or that type of uh, prosecuting in court, I should say, it just seems so like you don't know where the line is between that being useful and where mm -hmm. it is being kind of exploitive in a way and um, kind of tone deaf. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't, I was going to say something, but I'm struggling to even like put the words together, but like, it's so complex. It. Yeah. I can't imagine what would happen if somebody tried to use my interests and all of that against me. Yeah. Especially like at, in those like adolescent ages, I mean, mm-hmm. true crime, ghost hunting, <laughs> uh, emo music, like that was that was me, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so what else was popular in the mid two thousands? Oh boy. Uh, okay, we got our MySpace. We got our emo music. We got our. What is really dumb and cringy from MTV? From the mid two thousands. Dumb and cringy MTV from the two thousands. Teen Mom. Jackass. Jackass. Is there a Jackass connection here? Kind of. Okay. So, one of the videos that was used against her in court is a video of her with her brothers. So they're standing at. I believe it's like a farm or something near like an electric fence. A lot got made of this at the trial. Hmm. Um, And she is one of the twin brothers is video recording and it's her and the other brother. And she it has this very like jackass introduction of like, I'm Alista Bustamante and I'm going to touch the electric fence. And she does, and it zaps her, and she falls on the ground. Okay. And then she dares her little brothers to do it. Mm. And her little brothers, I want to say they're about 9 or 10 at the time. And she's kind of, like, slightly bullying them into doing it. And one of them is like, okay, okay, I'll do it. He clearly doesn't actually do it. Like, very clearly fakes it. And she kind of, you know, teases him a little bit and then is like, oh, well, you have to do it to the one behind the camera. And he does the same thing. And, you know, 
And this video, I watched the video, by the way. <laughs> That's how I know that she, these brothers very clearly didn't watch mm, this. Okay. Um, but a lot of ma- is made out of this, of like, oh, look, she's torturing her brothers. And, oh, look, she is bullying them and torturing them. And, you know, how dare she? So, okay, <sighs> this is the point at which, here's the question I have, okay? Like, from mm-hmm. prosecution perspective... My understanding is that what you all you really need is like we think about cases as like you need every single duck to line up in a row or mm-hmm, it's not going to mm-hmm. work when really the truth is you need a few slam dunks. I'd imagine yep. a 15 year old committing a stabbing and um, slitting a neck and beating a, a little girl. There's going to be a bunch of physical evidence, right? So why does she? Yeah. Why does yeah. and she confessed? So what is the prosecution benefit to bringing all this stuff out, I guess, is my question. So there are a couple of reasons. The first one is her confession was thrown out. Okay. Her confession was thrown out. Basically, it was described as inappropriate questioning of a minor. So I don't know if that's they questioned her without her grandmother there or they were asking her inappropriate questions. There was no lawyer offered to her, something like that. So the confession was thrown out. The other reason was because they wanted to paint her in the most awful light as possible because they were seeking life in prison. Oh, Was she tried as a minor or as an adult? We're going to get into that, but she was eventually tried as an adult. Gotcha. Okay. So even though they would have had premeditation as far as like when she had dug those holes, because she dug those holes ahead of time, and by digging multiple holes, it shows she was trying to like find the best spot or find the most, you know. We'll get into that too, yeah. Gosh dang. Yeah. Sorry, I'm like preempting all of your stuff with my questions. I'm just like, no, you're good because some of your questions are like, oh yeah, I should have mentioned. No, this. I'm just thinking about it from like from the prosecution point of view of like, why do you need? Why are we going through like, all this? Why do you need to demonize this girl yeah. when she's already admitted wrongdoing and she's clearly going to be punished for? Yeah, it? and it feels like some very murky First Amendment waters too. So it it feels like, to be honest, it feels like it's teeing her up for a strong appeal. Yeah, I I would think that. And a lot of this came from not only the prosecution, but the local media and then the national media. Okay. So she was painted in the most disgusting light. True TV. Mm. Oh, true TV. Who we love. Um, kind of described her as this sadistic serial killer in the making, that she was cold and disturbed. Mm. They described her MySpace photos as, quote, she gritted her teeth and made faces when she wasn't pouting like a sex pot. Oh, boy. Which is, like, literally every MySpace photo. But at the same time, like, the thing that I'm anxious about is also, like, in the process of dragging all of this out, Every time that we sensationalize another step, I feel like we move further away from appropriately remembering and honoring the dignity of the child that lost her life in that situation. Yeah. Oh, I agree. So that just like, 
imagining the media circus around this makes me very sad for Elizabeth and her family. Yeah. Yeah. And Elizabeth's mother, Patricia, she was a very emotional person. Yeah. Obviously, especially after this. Um, and she became very hysterical at the trial. Mm. Like, just hysterical tears. Um, we'll talk about it in a bit, but when she was allowed to make her statement, she dug just as hard into some of these stereotypes and things like that. Okay. And again, like, she has every right to yeah, do that. Yeah, for sure. She has every right to be as angry as she wants yeah, to be. Definitely. I think it's the media and the prosecution that have more responsibility. Yeah. To... Oh, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um, so there was one thing that was kind of like legitimately disturbing. And I think where we hit that line between like how much of this is just a 15 year old being a 15 year old that's struggling with mental health and something that is genuinely concerning is apparently at a party with a friend one night, um, Alyssa pulled a friend aside and said, you know, I wonder what it would be like to kill somebody. Oh, boy. And the friend was, like, a little bit freaked out, but also kind of didn't take it that seriously. Right. Kind of assumed, you know, she was mad that night. I just guess she was just upset yeah. at somebody. Or this is like, you I'm don't... trying to be cool. Party banter. Yeah. Yeah, you don't logically think that your friend is going to kill somebody. Right. right. And again, this whole time she's continuing in therapy... She's taking her antidepressants, but she's still struggling with suicidal ideation, self-injury, hospitalizations, and things like that. So I want to talk about a little bit the lead up to um, October 21st. So we're going to jump a couple weeks prior. In early October 2009... Alyssa had a visit with her psychiatrist. Her and her grandmother said that they didn't feel like the Prozac was doing anything. She had been on it for so long and they weren't seeing any changes. And she just doesn't seem to be responding. So the psychiatrist increased the dosage to 40 milligrams, which is well within the typical therapeutic range. And within the first two weeks, Alyssa's grandmother called the psychiatrist back Within the first two weeks after the increase in dosage, Alyssa's grandmother called the psychiatrist back and said, I don't know what's going on. She seems more irritable. She seems angry. She's acting out. She's not coming home from school. She won't sit still. Okay. And obviously upset and concerned. The psychiatrist told Karen, the grandmother, to just kind of stick with it. It can take up to six weeks for the effects to set in. Again, pretty typical advice from a psychiatrist. But obviously there wouldn't be a chance for that to happen. Friday, October 16th, um, the town had the day off school for parent-teacher conferences. This was the day that Alyssa dug two holes in the woods behind her house and left them. Just dug the two holes went back about her day interesting the rest of the weekend went from all reports pretty normal no one said that anything was especially out of the ordinary just days before the murder Alyssa, obviously still struggling wrote in her journal 
if I don't talk about it, I bottle it up. And when I blow, somebody's going to die. This brings us to Wednesday, October 21st. Alyssa told her little sister, Emma, to go invite Elizabeth to come over and play around 5 p.m. So Emma and Elizabeth play for about an hour. But Elizabeth goes to leave around 6 p.m., as instructed by her mom. Yep. And there were differing reports on this. Alyssa either told Elizabeth that she would walk her home or said that she had a gift for Elizabeth that she wanted to show her in the woods. Okay. But either way, Elizabeth followed her into the woods. When they got to the woods, Alyssa attacked her. Mm -hmm. According to the medical records, Alyssa strangled her and then proceeded to stab and cut her. And eventually sliced her throat. Good grief. The medical examiner was unable to determine what happened first, but said that it was the stab wounds that ended her life. It's so much, you know, like we've had a lot of cases where it's overkill. And that's Mm -hmm. that's a lot to inflict upon somebody. And it makes you wonder how much of that was kind of experimentation on Alyssa's part. Because it seems kind of disorganized. Yeah, it's like she didn't necessarily have a plan of what she was going to do or she wanted to experiment a little bit. I guess that's the darker take, but that's where my my brain went, you know? Your brain is going toward the darker take? It is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You want me to keep that in mind? No, no, I just, I don't know which way to go with this. Because... Alyssa's seen a lot in her life. We also know that most killers have seen a lot in their life. Yeah, that's true. Do we know that it, if it was it was a manual strangulation or um, was it ligature used? I read actually both that it was manual, but also that she used a scarf. Okay. So I guess my only so. the reason I go to the dark side is because she had all that with her. Right. Yeah. She had a knife. Having a scarf doesn't That's true. wouldn't yeah, shock scarf, me. Necessarily. Um, yeah. Right. But a knife, yeah. Yeah. Or that she had the knife in the woods in the area. Mm-hmm. And she kind of set the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Um Alyssa put Elizabeth's body in the grave that she had dug and covered it in dirt and leaves and then returned home. She documented her feelings in her diary, like we read before. And left for church. All of this happened within a 15-minute period. Oh, my gosh. So that that does speak to disorganization, too. Yeah. It's strange to me because, like, she asked Emma to have a friend over. But she obviously knew that she was leaving for church. Right. But she asked for this friend, too. Yeah. So interesting. And was it maybe because she knew she could get Elizabeth to go with her or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's an interesting kind of question that never, nobody was ever able to answer. Um, we'll talk about it in a bit, but there was a rumor that got passed around a lot that she dug two holes because they were supposedly for her brothers. Oh. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Alyssa denied that, but it. It just swirled around forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, as a rumor, it makes sense. Like, yeah. Yeah. 
So by the time Alyssa was interviewed by the police, she was described as calm and placid with no indication that she had been involved in anything. Mm-hmm. Like we said in the beginning, she was kind of removed and distant from the whole interview. As we discussed the next day, Alyssa was arrested, but again, shortly after the arrest, she had to be rushed to the psychiatric hospital for a suicide mm-hmm. attempt. While in custody. While in custody, yeah. That's where she was evaluated and diagnosed with major depressive disorder and, bing, bing, traits of borderline personality disorder. Oh, man, I'm so good. (laughs) Again, traits of because she was so young. So that's sometimes when we diagnose, we will include that kind of tendency to more as a notation. Mm -hmm. Yes, more as a notation to alert treatment teams. Yeah. Well, at the hospital, she worked with Dr. Rosalind Schultz for evaluation. Um, Alyssa told Dr. Schultz that when she cut herself, she didn't feel pain, and she would often actually do it to fall asleep. Mm. Wow. She said that she was in a very dreamlike state when she killed Elizabeth, and that it felt like she was watching it from the outside. Wow. I kind of want you to keep that in mind when we kind of go to talk more about some other things. Okay. It's long. Um, and she said that she dug the two holes because when she tried to dig the first one, she hit a tree root that she couldn't get through. So that's when she started digging the second hole. Oh. Which is a much less fantastical story yeah. than they were intended for her brothers. Yeah, but completely makes sense. And why, I guess at this point, what does she have to lose? and yeah. you know not telling the truth so yeah. yeah and also it seemed like from reading what she shared with dr schultz that she felt really comfortable with her so oh, well good for you dr schultz you did a good job <laughs> you did a good job and and that Alyssa really did start breaking down crying when asked about elizabeth's murder like really upset at what she had done So, obviously, after Alyssa confessed and all the evidence points directly to her, the police tried initially to keep it kind of hush-hush so that they could have a fair trial. Good luck. (laughs) Right? In fact, Cole County Sheriff Greg White made a public statement where he said, I know that it would be cathartic for the public to know what happened, but the difficulty with that is we have to maintain a prosecutable case. Mm -hmm. We're not going to contaminate jury pools or anything else. Yeah. And juveniles do have a different set of privacy rights. So, yes. And despite their good intentions, this is a town of 1,100 people. Yeah. One child murdering another is going to make waves. It sure is. Yeah. No doubt. And like I kind of said, there was so much vitriol going on around this case. Yeah. And unbridled just demonizing yeah well it's Um, so horrific and i have to assume that this is not a place where we're particularly used to seeing brutal crimes or children disappearing or or things like that happen and you know you want to see somebody go down for it and you want to see somebody go down for it hard right like i think we see that a lot especially when we are looking at small towns too small towns and children So I'm going to read you a couple of Facebook comments. Oh, good. I really can't avoid Facebook comments, even in Midwretched. Nope. No, you can't. First one, going to start off pretty mild. From what I've heard, this girl had mental problems for some time and has seen counselors or someone in the past. OK. 
Yeah. Fine. Cool. Next one. What a shame it is that the murderer didn't die when she tried to commit suicide in 2007. Oh, wow. When she was 13. Yeah. Okay. The last one I'll leave you with is either deport her or send her to the gas chamber. One less sicko wasting our tax dollars. Deport her to what? California, where she was born? Yeah. <sighs> Fantastic. 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 Thank you, Facebook comments, for, like, completely diluting my faith in humanity. Cool. Just the best representation of life. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Good job. Now, it when you kind of teed me up for the last, before we started this, I thought that the most interesting thing was some quotes from her friends. Okay. Oh, yeah. In local right. newspapers. Yeah. yeah. So I've got one quote from a friend. Everyone's spreading rumors and things are going everywhere. But I think people are just trying to find an answer, trying to find some way to explain it. And basically, just try to understand that there is no explanation, really. Wow, that's really astute. From another, like, teenager. Yeah. Teenagers are the best, man. Mm-hmm. When they're not killing people. Another rumor that was going around was that her grandmother knew that Alyssa killed Elizabeth, and that's why she tried to take her to that psychiatric hospital to hide her. Wow. Come on, Come on. Yeah. I am curious about kind of where Karen is in all this, but... Karen was trying. Yeah. Like, they're in a small town in Missouri. She's driving to and from these therapy and these psychiatrist appointments. She's calling the psychiatrist when she doesn't think that the medications are working. Yeah, she's really doing the best she can. Trying to raise at least three kids with pretty significant drama histories. Plus a fourth whose history I don't know as much about. But, yeah. But still probably... I mean, she came from the same situation, so... Yeah. And like I said... Alyssa's trial wasn't any better than the social media. So here's where we get to how she was ended up being charged as an adult. Okay. Now, apparently they initially wanted to charge her as a minor. Missouri has what they call a dual jurisdiction mm-hmm. for minors. And what basically happens is that if a minor is found guilty, they'll be held at a juvenile facility until the age of 21. Now, at the age of 21, a new hearing is held, essentially to identify have they been rehabilitated. Okay. I think that's, that makes sense to Yeah, me. yeah, for sure. If it's determined that they've been rehabilitated, they can be released. Otherwise, they have to serve the rest of their sentence. Oh, okay. So they'll be sentenced to whatever the court finds appropriate. Mm-hmm. They'll serve up to the age of 21, and then they'll be retried or... Re-evaluated, they'll yeah. Re-evaluated, yeah. To see if they need to serve the rest of their term. That's really interesting. That feels adequately progressive, you know? Yeah. But it was really because of the sensationalizing of this case and because of kind of the publicity that they felt. This was a quote from the prosecutor. It was an adult-like crime and deserves an adult-like sentence. Oof. Yeah, I don't... (laughs) Interesting. I'm sorry, that's not a convincing argument to me. Yeah, I think I think you can make that argument, but I think that phrasing it that way undermines what you're trying to say in the first place. 
I, I, I agree. They never wanted this girl to see the light of day again. And the judge allowed her to be tried as an adult. Oh, so then she wouldn't get the benefit of the double jurisdiction? Correct. Gotcha. Okay. And it kind of seems like they tried to rush this through the court because they were seeking a life sentence. And at the time, the Supreme Court was queued up to hear a case that would essentially ban automatic life sentences for minors. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were trying to push her trial through before this Supreme Court hearing. Gotcha. So they... Alyssa was not aware of this. Of yeah. Of course she wasn't. And they really just did not want her to see the light of day, like you said. Yeah. No. No. Like I said, they really painted her as the next Ted Bundy. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what a trial by media can often do. I mean, if this had been able to stay out of the spotlight, mm-hmm. I, I think it probably would have, she probably would have been able to have a, a juvenile trial or the, the yeah. double jurisdiction. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, dual jurisdiction, but yeah. Um, so she was charged with first-degree murder and charged as an adult. The prosecutor asked for life plus 71 years. Wow. To make up for the years lost by Elizabeth's death. Good gracious. Elizabeth's defense attorney said, we're throwing away a child and we're signing a death sentence for Alyssa. She's not going to survive her time in Cole County Jail. Mm. As we kind of mentioned, I know we've we've jumped a little bit around my notes in this case, (laughs) but um, prosecutors painted her as soulless, pure evil. Um, This was one thing that really upset me. So... Alyssa maintained communication with her dad while he was in prison. Oh, okay. So he would write letters to her and she would keep them and she would kind of tack some of them to her walls. Yeah. And they used this against her. What? How? They framed this as she's communicating with violent felons. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a reach. Yeah. That's a big I that really reach. that made me upset. Yeah, yeah. That's such a reach. Wow. All of Elizabeth's family members testified, obviously saying that she ne- she would never have a chance to grow up. Um that her brothers felt guilty that they had always tried to protect her and failed to protect her. Patricia, Elizabeth's mother, called Alyssa a monster that didn't deserve to live. Mm-hmm. Which again, I I get it. It's totally understandable. She has every... Yeah, and I was, I yeah. was just thinking at this point, like, I certainly, like, never want it to sound like we don't want to hold culpable people accountable for the horrible things that that they do. You know, I think mm-hmm. we really just spend a lot of time kind of dissecting systems because they sometimes just don't seem to parse, but none of that is about, like, trying no. to undercut any of that tragedy. No, yeah. again... Her, Elizabeth's death, her murder was a complete tragedy that never should have happened. It was awful. I can say that and still say, I don't think Alyssa got a fair trial. Right. We have to hold two things. That's the, we need to put that on, start putting that on t-shirts. Like, hold two (laughs) things. things. Because it's true. It's true. (laughs) And it's not, it's not a fair trial. Like. No. And this. 
this it sounds like we haven't started talking about defense yet but from what mm-hmm. i know about the defense strategy it ne- doesn't necessarily sound a whole hell of it was poo-pooed better. yeah it was poo-pooed okay. so uh Alyssa's defense attorney his name is valentine uh tried to bring attention valentine, to her mental like, state name or i don't know his uh first oh, name okay valentine but mr valentine mm. I, I see that face. I, it's a great name. It's a great name. <laughs> it was my great-great-grandfather's name, actually. Yeah, Aww. his first name. <laughs> Isn't that great? Anyway, Mr. Valentine. Um, obviously, he wasn't trying to say that Alyssa wasn't guilty. Alyssa knew what she had done. She accepted responsibility for mm-hmm. it. His goal was to bring attention to her mental state and her youth as mitigating factors. He offered what became known, what we know now as the Prozac defense. Spoiler alert, it didn't work. Mm. And this is where we talk about brains? Yeah, this is where we're going to talk about brains. Okay. (laughs) So I want to break down to the nitty-gritty what the Prozac defense is and... I don't know, I'm just going to go. Yeah, I'm so ready for the nitty gritty. All right. So obviously they called in a million psychiatrists to talk about the Prozac defense. Mm-hmm. Valentine called in Dr. Edwin Johnstone, who researches the effects of antidepressants to testify that Prozac may have had a very significant effect on Alyssa's behavior. Mm-hmm. He's testified that Prozac can cause adverse side effects, including impulsiveness, insomnia, agitation, irritability, suicidality, and violence in some patients. Yeah, and most SSRIs carry that warning specifically mm-hmm. related to juveniles. Yes, that's what we call the black, the black, uh, box, black warning. box warning. Yeah. Yes, specifically for the use in minors. There's a controversy controversy in the use of that as well, but that's another discussion for when I guess star on solve. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but the prosecution, of course, had their own expert witness, Dr. Anthony Rothschild, who cited study after study that there's no evidence that Prozac increases violence or hostility, yeah. which this is where I have to give my caveat right before I go into all of this. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am a neuropsychologist. I am not your psychologist. I am not your psychiatrist, people. And nor are you that for Alyssa Bustamante. Exactly. Nor am I that for Alyssa Bustamante. Nor am I telling you to not take your medication. Mm -hmm. I'm not telling you to take it or not to take it. That is a conversation between you and your doctor and for you guys to have amazing and awesome communication about that. That's all I ask. (laughs) Yes. So, that caveat to the side, what does the science actually say about Prozac? This is going to get really granular, because it's my favorite thing in the world. All right. Grain me. Let's get granular. Mm. All right. Prozac is an SSRI. And now, the way that I typically explain that and explain the use of SSRIs is that it helps inhibit or stop the reabsorption of serotonin between neurons that are communicating to each other Mm -hmm. so that it leaves more of it available in the gap between synapses Mm -hmm. so that it can transfer from one neuron to the next. 
Serotonin is a molecule that helps us do things like regulate our sleep, our energy, our appetite, and other regulatory mechanisms. If you think about some of those really debilitating symptoms of depression, that makes sense, right? Yeah, for sure. We get lethargic, we get insomniac, I get hypersomnia, so all I do is sleep. In doing this, SSRIs help regulate these mechanisms and help improve our mood and address a lot of those functional symptoms of depression. Mm-hmm. Other SSRIs include Lexapro, Celexa, a lot of really common ones on the market. Yes. Thank you, Lexapro. <laughs> <laughs> they, they can be really great medication, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean... They can be life-changing for they people. They really are. I mean, I have like a... I have generalized anxiety disorder, right? So mm-hmm. um, I'm on like a baby dose of Lexapro because I'm like a literal lightweight and everything. Everything is just like works instantly so i'm taking like (laughs) i think i'm taking like the entry-level pediatric dose basically but uh for anxiety like it you know we often see anxiety and depression go together right um but you know anxiety comes with a lot of very similar symptoms that Mm -hmm. are basically about dysregulation as well right Mm -hmm. so by uh, inhibiting that reuptake right which is its name Mm -hmm. uh you don't get that um kind of cycling through of those like of toxic and harmful you yeah. know patterns of of thought so all that to say i love you lexapro thank you when i'm explaining this a lot i use my hands but you guys can't see my hands but imagine i have one hand on top and it's shooting out little serotonin molecules and then this hand on the bottom is grabbing them up but at the same time this one's grabbing them up the one on top is also trying yeah. so they're trying to like fight each other And so SSRIs stop the top hand from trying to grab them back. Yeah, it's like stopping the evil claw claw machine. Just yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, (laughs) you did a really good job explaining that. Good job. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll put a video on our social media of me just doing this. do some gifts it's get some very apparent i work with children yes gosh amen (laughs) sister don't i know it obviously it's a lot more involved than that at the molecular level yes Um, and the other question oh go ahead oh i was just gonna say say if (laughs) i say if you're interested google pharmacokinetics it was my favorite class in graduate that's cool anyway go ahead well so my thing was like um there's also this huge, and you're probably going to get there, but like, so that, that that's the function of SSRIs, right? And a huge part of like being able to take them to an effective therapeutic dose is figuring out dosage. And that's what Alyssa was right in the middle of, was kicking up a dose, right? So mm-hmm. she wasn't on the steady dose that she, you know, knew before, right? She didn't have time for those things to work themselves out. So... Yeah. And it's, I will say, they won't necessarily have ever worked themselves. Yeah. Mm. We don't know that. Right. It's possible some people have those side effects that they simply can't tolerate. They don't go away. Yeah. Some people they go away for and in that six weeks, they're like, oh, oh, this is great. Like I take, I don't take any psychiatric medication, but I take a medication for my arthritis the first month I was on it, it was absolutely unbearable. But after that first month, I was like, oh, damn, 
no more side effects. I feel great. I can walk. I don't feel like there's glass shards in my joints. It's wonderful. Oh, that's beautiful. So I also want to say, so no medication ever acts on just one chemical. Mm -hmm. We're just not there yet scientifically. There are always interactions with other chemicals, other neurotransmitters. Some of them we actually like and we want. Mm -hmm. And in the case with SSRIs, they will not only affect the functioning of serotonin, but also the functioning of dopamine, which most people know as the reward chemical. We do happy things and dopamine is released and we're like, yeah, I snuggle my dog and I get lots of dopamine and I'm like, yeah. (laughs) So dopamine is mostly, we most commonly think of it as a reward chemical, but it actually has a lot of other important roles. Um, specifically having to do with movement. Mm. So I'm going to talk about four dopamine pathways. I'm You're so sorry. So hard. <laughs> I mean, it's your it's your okay. thing, man. I'm 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 with it. So there are four primary dopamine pathways. The first one is called the mesolimbic pathway. Mm-hmm. Dopamine is released up through the ventral tegmental area. Mm-hmm. Into the, into the nucleus accumbens, and we get happy. Okay. It's important that we get a little bit of this throughout our day, but not too much because the brain loves modulation. Mm. Not too much, not too little. It's like ice cream, just the right amount. Dopamine is also associated with cognition and working memory and decision-making. Mm. This pathway is called the mesocortical pathway. The dopamine starts in the ventral tegmental area, and projects into the prefrontal cortex, which is our forehead area. And this is where we get our concentration. Disruptions here mean poor concentration and impaired decision-making. And then there's the one that I hate to say, the tubero-infundibular pathway. Oh, my. (laughs) This one has a lot to do with hormonal functioning, which means that disruptions here will affect your metabolism, your sexual functioning, and your immune system. Mm. It can also lead to galacteria. What's that? Which sounds like a cosmic essence. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> but it is actually nipple discharge. Oh. Yeah. That'd be a good drag name. Galacteria. Okay. okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'll, I'll float that too. Sometimes. Okay. <laughs> I want credit though. Um, the, the next one that we're going to talk about is actually a really important one is the nigrostriatal pathway. Mm. This is involved in motor movement and motor planning. This pathway begins in the substantia nigra and carries into the caudate and the putamen, which are parts of the basal ganglia. Okay. This pathway actually contains about 80% of the dopamine in our brain. The substantia nigra is notable if you slice the brain because it's a little black speck. Oh. That's why it's called the substantia nigra. Cute. Uh, <laughs> This pathway is associated with purposeful movement and impairments here will see disruptions in motor movement. And actually that's a, so when you think of like Parkinson's symptoms and the movement symptoms of Parkinson's, yeah. that has to do with significant disruption in the, in this pathway. That is so interesting. Yeah, see, I'm a nerd, but it's cool. It is cool. I'm a nerd too. I'm with it. <laughs> so now When we have problems with dopamine, specifically one type of dopamine Mm -hmm. that we call D2, um, D2 binding and dopamine pathways, we see what we call extrapyramidal symptoms, which are essentially a collection of side effects, drug-induced movement disorders. Okay. 
this might include what we're going to talk about akathisia, which is a severe feeling of restlessness, unnecessary, unplanned movement coming from the Greek meaning to not sit. Mm. That, yeah. Interesting. Okay. What makes this different from like typical fidgetiness mm is that it often includes larger limb movements, mm. including full leg movements mm. and trunk movement. Interesting. Sometimes the inability to keep a posture. Okay. And this also has a dose risk escalation, okay. meaning the higher your dose, the more severe it's going to get if you have this side effect, mm. which not everybody gets. In fact, with SSRIs, it's a pretty rare side effect. Yeah. yeah. So what does akathisia have to do with our murder case? Yeah. There is increasing evidence that D2 disruption and related akathisia is associated with as- adverse events, including both suicide and homicide. Mm. Now, it is very hard to explain what akathisia looks like. So I'm just going to share my screen with okay. you. And I'll describe it because I'm really good with words. Okay, so... That was hard to watch, actually. So, yeah, this uh, this guy describes having um, akathisia as feeling like worse than a horror movie. It's like so the way that he was moving was like um, like full body tremors, kind of like what you said. Like mm-hmm. it was um, just kind of jaunty, and he couldn't stop moving at all. But it was clearly like outside of his control entirely. And so mm-hmm. while he was moving, which I take to be his kind of constant state, he was describing like constant pain, wanting to die, um, that it's worse than a horror movie, and um, that the monster lives inside of you, that it's not coming from outside of you. And um, mm-hmm. just like hearing him say that coupled with the how extreme that movement was like this isn't like it it's not like a twitch it's not um a leg twitch or an eye twitch it's his entire body just like like he can't stop moving his entire being mm-hmm. wow so like i said there is increasing evidence that akathisia is associated with suicide and homicidal feelings and ideation I will say it's most often seen in antipsychotics, which act more directly on dopamine, but it has been documented in SSRIs and lithium, tricyclics, mm-hmm. um, and other medications. The association has been found to be the strongest in individuals with variant alleles in the CYP450 gene. Interesting. It, and I'm again. I'm so sorry, guys. No, this is. I I feel like I speak for the entirety of the Midwretched family when I say it's super interesting. Is there akathisia without medication? Like, is there natural akathisia affliction, or I don't believe so. That's interesting too. Because um, like the closest thing would be like a a disorder like Parkinson's okay. disease. Yeah, because I guess like for there to have to be, there would have to be this push of the dopamine essentially like in disproportionately into the wrong pathway yes yeah um so i want to talk about kind of that variant allele cyp450 oh i will say only recently have we been able to identify and test for this allele but it's actually become kind of important Mm -hmm. So CYP450 is a family of genes that play a role in metabolism of all antidepressants and a lot of other medications. Mm. So that's to say it's a family 
of genes, and there are lots of variants of this genes. I'm going to talk about one kind of small study. This is emerging research. So again, this is not me speaking for the psychiatric or the neuropsychological field. This is something I found really interesting. Yeah. That's, that's the extent of it. Um, one study I found of 129 psychiatric patients who were referred to a clinical forensic practice. So again, not 129 people in the general population, not even 129 people in you know the mental health or the depression population, a specific forensic population. Eight of these 129 people were tested and found to have this variant, mm. had committed homicide, mm. and two others had become extremely violent while on this SSRI. Interesting. So that's nearly 8% of people with this variant allele had either committed homicide or become extremely violent. Mm. There are lots of variants of this allele. Only three were studied in this particular piece of research. Okay. Of the 10 violent subjects, all but two were on some kind of interacting drug. Mm. That can include either another medication, an illicit substance, or an herbal medication. Interesting. Herbal medications are not completely harmless. Guys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> None of the akathisia patients had histories of violence before they were started on SSRIs. That is so interesting. And I, I feel like this is kind of a good time to also just like throw in there that like when we're talking about, oh, when you are, I'm just like listening. But uh, <laughs> when we as in the universal, we are talking about this like kind of specific subset of mm -hmm. side effects and after effects the vast, vast majority of people that experience side effects from SSRIs, basically you get like tummy troubles and night sweats for a couple exactly. of Exactly. Like, and that's what the vast, vast majority yeah. of people experience. What I'm talking about here is a subpopulation of a subpopulation of a subpopulation. Right, yes. Which is why I, this is why I started this by saying I am not telling you to not take psychiatric medications. Right. They are fucking great. They're amazing. And they're amazing. They're like in the top five or top 10 most prescribed drug mm -hmm. in America. So it's not as though huge numbers of us, myself included, aren't taking these every day. Right. Oh, yeah. And and for the vast, vast majority of people, they're incredibly safe mm -hmm. and effective. Um, but what we're talking about here is, again, a tiny population that we luckily now, and I'm going to talk about, have the ability to identify possibly. Mm. So going back to that study of 109 people or 129 people, remember that they had all been referred from some kind of forensic situation, so some kind of legal situation, into this clinical forensic practice. They did a follow-up study on 85 subjects with akathisia that had CYP450 alleles tested and compared their test results to 150 people in the normal population, just normal primary care patients. Mm -hmm. 98.8% of the akathisia patients had at least one of these variant alleles. Wow. And most of them had multiple variants. That is so interesting. 81% of the primary care patients, so just general population, mm -hmm. had one variant allele. And significantly fewer had multiple variant alleles. Gotcha. So that's pretty statistically significant finding. Yes, big time. 
what what that tells us is that it's maybe not uncommon to have a variance, but the more variance you have, the higher risk you are for akathisia. Right. So I wanted to read just a little bit from one patient that they interviewed in this study, or one, I should say, one research participant from this study. It was an 18-year-old male patient found guilty of killing his father with a gun. Wow. The patient said that he had initially felt better on the medication, but that he is later began to experience higher agitation, paranoia, aggression, and suicidal ideation. Mm. He was quoted as saying, wanting to die, I walked a long way to a friend's house where I found a pistol. I walked eight miles to my father's house. Wow. Talked to him for a few minutes. Felt very small, as if I was watching myself from above. Mm. I remember my dad, and then the sound of a gun. No argument, no provocation. Don't remember pulling it out of my back pocket. Don't remember pointing it. Couldn't understand what happened or what I had done. I wanted to shoot myself and I confessed immediately. Wow. So he also describes that I felt like I was watching it from above. Mm-hmm. So they they talk a little bit about different like fluoxetine serum levels and um, D2 metabolizing capacity and things like that that I'm not going to get into. But, you know, I think that... When most people hear, oh, it's the Prozac defense, Mm. for the vast, vast majority of the population, like we said, Prozac's a perfectly safe medication. But it's possible that maybe we can identify people that are more likely to have a negative reaction to Mm. it. And actually, genetic testing for psychiatric medications is now publicly available. Oh, cool. Yeah, we did it at my last job. Mm. We use a company called GeneSight. It was covered by insurance. It is currently FDA approved. Mm. But it's able to identify if you have those variant alleles and a lot of other possible kind of genetic and and metabolic differences Mm. to see if maybe you won't respond to this medication. Interesting. Think about it like there's a subpopulation of people who have very aberrant reactions to opioids. Like instead of it putting them out or easing their pain, it actually activates them. Mm. Yikes. Just makes me throw up, but dang. It's fucking terrifying. Doctors will kind of see these patients like they go to put them out and they will actually get up and stand up. (gasps) Whoa. I actually had an ex who had this reaction. Oh, well, that doesn't surprise me. He went in. Yeah, he had every aberrant reaction. (laughs) He was an aberrant reaction. (laughs) No. He had tooth surgery and I had to fucking lock him in a room because he was fucking losing it. Jeez. But no, like there's, there's again, this like tiny, tiny population that has this aberrant reaction to this very common medication. All we need to do is find a way to identify them so that we can avoid negative reactions. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the good news is that we're starting to learn how to test for that and identify Mm. that. Medical testing just got approved and I want to say 2019 or 2020. So it's pretty new and it's only for adult testing. But it's possible that this could be a big deal. Yeah, it'd be a huge deal. Mm-hmm. It could be. A- and again, I don't. The science is still out on the Prozac defense. I just wanted to present this really interesting research. Yeah, I think it's super. So I'm sorry for any of you guys that were not here for brain talk. I mean, they're but... probably gone by now anyway. <laughs> sorry. Guys. So if you're still here, then 
then you're one of us. You know, I told myself, I'm like, I'm just going to do a really straightforward case this week. Yeah. You lying. (laughs) With all of that said, again, this technology and this scientific knowledge was not out there at the time. And, you know, the quote unquote Prozac defense was kind of poo-pooed. I won't say that I think her doctors acted inappropriately at all. I don't think her psychiatrist was inappropriate in prescribing it, I think. And like you said, it was within the therapeutic dose. And, you know, she was ready and needed a dosage increase, arguably. So, Mm -hmm. But honestly, I think that Alyssa's doctors, Alyssa's family, I think they were all trying. Mm -hmm. It didn't change the outcome. It didn't change her sentencing. The judge and the jury took no pity. They did not consider her mental health or her age when it came to her sentencing. So although she was 15 at the time of the crime, she wasn't sentenced until she was 18. And in order to avoid a mandatory life sentence, which she would have gotten if she was found guilty of first-degree murder, she pled guilty to second-degree murder and an armed criminal act. Interesting. She was sentenced to life in prison, which, according to Missouri state law, means that she will be eligible for parole after 30 years. So she has to serve 30 years of the life sentence and then three years of the Armed Criminal Act sentence. Mm, And then she'll be parole eligible. Yes, then she'll be parole eligible. Okay. So that's kind of the agreement that she took when she agreed to plead guilty to second degree which means that she will be eligible for parole at age 51 throughout the trial she had kept a pretty neutral face and really kind of just stared at the floor Mm -hmm. but when she heard the reaction of her mother after they read the sentence she broke down crying and again some people kind of read a lot into that but to be honest if When I'm stressed, that's what I do is I just stare at the floor. Yeah. I think that she felt there was nothing at all that she could have done. Very little has been heard from Alyssa since the sentencing. She did try to appeal on the grounds, essentially, that her lawyers didn't tell her about this upcoming Supreme Court hearing. Oh, interesting. That if she had known that there was a possibility that she wouldn't get life in prison, that she would have waited it out. Mm. That didn't go anywhere. What I thought was interesting was Elizabeth's mother sued Alyssa. Interesting. For wrongful death and won a $5 million settlement. Wow. That Alyssa apparently has to pay. Wow. Now, essentially the way that that breaks down is Alyssa is able to keep $500 in her prison account, but everything else has to go to Elizabeth's mother, Patricia. And... It's not money. No, she's not earning money. No. Well, prisoners can earn money in prison. Right, but she's earning probably minimum not much. wage, yeah. Oh, less than minimum wage. We're talking pennies. Yeah. So she'll yeah. never pay that off. Like, there's no way. No. Wow. No. Um, Patricia also tried to sue two providers at the Behavioral Health Center where Alyssa was receiving treatment. Oh, that's interesting. She claimed that they should have known about Alyssa's violent tendencies. Did she win those that lawsuit? I can't imagine. No, no, that one got thrown out. Everybody wants psychologists and psychiatrists to be able to predict violence. Right. Yeah. We can't. 
we we straight up can't we wish we could too so all that to say like elizabeth's death is an absolute tragedy and i keep coming back to that because i don't want people to think that i'm dismissing it it's not that i don't think Alyssa was culpable i think that she 100 percent she did this yes she knows it we all know it it's majorly culpable yeah but I can't honestly say that I know that Alyssa deserves life in prison. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say that any juvenile offender does, even extracting yeah, yeah. what is possible as far as the quote-unquote Prozac defense, which seems like a really simplistic phrase mm-hmm. for what's actually really interesting, robust science. But whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, who am I to say? But yeah, like it's hard to say that any juvenile defender or juvenile... Um, Offender. offender yeah wow we both sucked, sucked. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's hard to put that on a juvenile offender like and sometimes i think they do deserve it and sometimes they don't and it's hard to know that line but i think you know this would have been one case where like a sequestered jury could have mm-hmm. been a really powerful thing um, I think that they should have moved the trial move, yes, far, far yes, away. Move that yeah. trial, sequester that jury, do what you got to do. I think anytime you have, like, it's not just media attention, because there's always going to be a little bit of media attention, but the type of media attention really matters. If we were out operating outside of the Midwest, I could geek out for about 47 episodes about Scott Peterson, for instance, as a trial <laughs> by media and not a trial by jury. Oh, God, right? 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 Um, so, yeah, I just think there's there would be a billion reasons to hold that trial way outside of where they held it because of yeah and i think in a different media climate it would have gone down differently it would have been nice to see some some fairness here because it doesn't feel like it was fair and again i i just feel like i have to keep saying that not that elizabeth's death was fair not that her murder was fair or anything like that but yeah. yeah but it really calls into question i was talking about this with students the other day because we're reading crime and punishment like when we think about like what is i asked them to look at confessions and um to read confessions and then to kind of compare the sentence that was given as a result of the confession versus what would have been given without the confession if they had lost a trial and yeah. um just to kind of observe the differences And then it kind of leads us into a conversation of like, how do we decide what's a fair punishment? We look to what is law, right? Mm -hmm. But how do we decide whether or not law is fair? That's when we throw up our hands, right? So Mm -hmm. who's to say what is a fair, quote unquote, fair punishment for specific crimes? Like at what point is that kind of arbitrarily decided, right? So, yeah, you know. I mean, I, I think that it was a poignant gesture to pursue the life sentence plus Elizabeth's lost life as a part of that sentence. Mm-hmm. And I think if it had been an adult offender, I would have been like cheering for that because I think it is yeah. it's a strong gesture and I like that gesture. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's so it's so much more nuanced with juveniles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It It really is. And I think especially looking at it was absolutely clear that Alyssa struggled with mental illness. Yes. No one questioned that. Yeah. The question was whether or not it mattered. 
And and we just had this conversation yeah. with Lisa Montgomery, right? Yeah. So it's like what? And again, like how do we how do we decide that? And we've also kind of danced around this idea that um, insanity is a legal definition, not a medical one, right? So yes. there's also who decides what and how do we use that terminology, right? Like no mm-hmm. clinician, I feel like uses the word insane, right? Nope. use the language of of this pathology or that pathology right so you know it's already kind of operating outside of the scope of like medical reality in many ways just inherently mm-hmm. you know so this is just really interesting food for thought because i feel like i have not as much as i've been like a true crime person and somebody like heavily invested in the legal process and um with a specific focus on juveniles in general just like as an educator I feel like I've never spent this much time in my life questioning or wondering what the appropriate way to handle juvenile offenders really is. And that Missouri Mm -hmm. dual jurisdiction, like, boy, does that make a heap load of sense? Right. And if if even just that had been extended in this case, that would be fair, even if it was the same sentence, the same decision mm-hmm. the fact that she could mm-hmm. be reevaluated in a you know in a handful of years and potentially mm-hmm. could be found like no we got to throw you back in there sister um yeah like no you really are like this dangerous but just that like the fact that that safety net did exist in Missouri and that she had and they just flew right by it yeah because yeah. otherwise that feels like that feels like a slam dunk idea to me you know, I like that idea. I think, and similarly with the juvenile thing, I really struggle with how do we deal with mental illness yeah. and crime. Yeah. And I, I, again, I don't necessarily have a f- any kind of coherent answer to that. No, it's why I just reached for a chocolate square to shut myself up. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. What do you guys think? <laughs> Tell us, please. Yeah. So, uh, Midratched listeners, thank you very much for hanging with us for this episode. I, as Mick said, probably longer than we intended. And, um, but hopefully the information was interesting for you and fruitful. And, um, I appreciate you guys like just chilling and listening to my brain talks. I hope it was interesting and not scary for anybody that has an SS that is on an SSRI. Yeah, I can't. It shouldn't be because for the vast majority of us, the worst symptom you're ever going to have as a side effect is going to be diarrhea. I mean, you know, (laughs) only for a few weeks. Yeah, and only for a couple of weeks. So, um, yeah, and I think like as I tend to want to do at the close of episodes, just like. I know I would really urge people to take a minute to just think about Elizabeth Olten, who um, lost her life in this really tragic and awful situation. So um, she was a child and uh, we need to remember that. So, yeah. yeah, So thank you for taking this time to listen to everything we had to say today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I hope I didn't bore anybody to death. I'm getting very insecure. Yeah, you need to stop apologizing because it's been fascinating. And you're going to have to edit out all of these apologies because we're not keeping them because we are boss bitches. You know, I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Yes. Hang with us. We're glad you're here. 
Um, as always, follow us, connect with us at MidWretched at all the things. Uh, we're glad you're here. You say nice things. Yes, we love that. We love that. And we just love it when people reach out to us in general. It's been really cool to see that. So, What's next week? Is next week Bell? Next week is Bell. So um, next week, I will be taking you into uh, my backyard. Not my literal backyard, but um, my regional backyard, maybe. Although, yeah, Belgana's got around. So, um, so next week, we will be talking about Northern Indiana's very own... Um, OG female serial killer Belle Gunness and I think I'm going to drive out to her uh, farm this week actually just to take a peek around so yeah so please come back and uh, hang out with us for that it's going to be a topsy-turvy ride for sure alright well as always people be nice eat cheese and we love you and we love your brains No, you're a boss ass bitch. Okay. You did a okay. good case. Okay. I'm a boss bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and our friendship in a nutshell. <laughs>